and welcome to our first Open Disclosure podcast. In this podcast, we're going to discuss a variety of topics ranging from politics to technology to business. Uh, we're going to take a closer look at current events and discuss the facts versus the fiction. Uh, you'll leave this podcast hopefully with a better understanding of what's happening and how everything ties together, plus get a little bit of my two cents worth as well. Um, before we begin, I'm just going to go ahead and introduce myself a little bit. Uh, my name's Giovanni. You should just call me Gio. Uh, I was born in South Africa and I spent a good deal of time in the U.S. when I was much, much younger. Spent about seven years down there. Uh, moved there when I was about three. Um, after that, we moved uh, to Canada and throughout my middle school through to about high school age and on, uh, we were in we were in Canada and around the Toronto area. Um, I took kind of a little atypical route through life after high school instead of the usual going through school. And then, you know, finding a job and everything afterwards. I didn't go straight to school right after. Um, I went instead to work right away. Uh, not to say that I didn't apply for these schools. Uh, I did actually apply for college and university coming out of high school. So I was accepted to some places, but decided not to go that route. Wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And it didn't make sense to go after something that I wasn't comfortable doing. And wasn't sure if I was going to enjoy. So... What I did, I guess, what people would consider today would be called taking a break from school. Uh, I, would, <laughs> I, uh, I would love to say I went off and traveled, but I definitely didn't. I uh, stayed here in Canada, and uh, instead I went to go and work full-time. Uh, I started working since I was 14. I ended up working for many different places when I was younger. I went from uh, working in just uh, you know retail and restaurants actually not so much in retail but mainly restaurants my first job was at a as like a back of the house like cook for uh, Boston pizza um, I ended up working for uh, a five-star hotel so an audiovisual company and uh, really just uh, wasn't comfortable staying in one place for too long so eventually I entered into the Canadian military uh, <laughs> seems a little bit of an offshoot considering my background there but uh, I went, I decided I wanted to go back in, well, I wanted something different, so I went into the military, and uh, I did, done about five years in there, still currently military, um, and actually, in the past few years, I applied for a program, sponsors members to go back to school and uh, get commissioned on, uh, on, on the government's dime, sort of like a sp sponsorship or scholarship. Um, Got accepted, and that's where I'm at now. I'm currently studying for my, my original bachelor's, uh, focusing in economics and legal studies. And um, that, now that you know a little bit about me, my background, that kind of brings us to our topic for today. Um, military and the perception of the public. Uh, it seems as we go through the years, less and less people seem to understand the importance, and even in some cases, the necessity of a military for the country of any size, uh, in particular Canada. Uh, in Canada, we seem uh, to see an attitude towards military being more of a negative one. Um, political parties always promise some sort of fixing or funding for the military and then never really pull through or in some parties just ignore the military altogether. Um, seemingly making it look like the military is a force that can just be done without. And honestly, having that kind of view on something that's as important as a country's military is not, not ideal. Um, <clears throat> So to put it into context, uh, there's an article by CBC back in July of 2018, uh, headlines, Military is off the radar for most Canadians. Um, I'll leave the link in the article on the podcast page. Um, the article states basically that most Canadians are shockingly unaware of what military does and what they're even involved in. 
Uh, there's even comments to the fact that most Canadians apparently are only vaguely aware that we even have a military. And, like, isn't that a little crazy? Like, we have the second largest landmass in the world to cover, second only to Russia, with a population of only about 37 million people. Which may sound like a lot, but when you consider how big of a country it is and where we are dispersed throughout Canada, it's not quite a lot of people. About more than 80% of the population actually lives near the border, which leaves this huge piece of land. Um, and comparing that to the neighbor in the south, the U.S., uh, where they have about 326 million people with the third largest landmass, it's quite the difference. Um, so what's that got to do with the military and public opinion? Uh, well, the answer is twofold. There is, uh, first is that a country with a mass the size of Canada actually needs to have a significantly sized force to protect its borders, and it's a vast amount of space. Um, you may think there's uh, nothing much past, <laughs> nothing much but ice past their northern border, but if you put it into perspective, right, Russia is right over the pole with uh, capability to reach us with little to no resistance. And sure, right now may seem like uh, it's a little silly to consider that being a serious threat any time in the future, and uh, we hope it won't be ever. Um, but the whole point of having a military is to be prepared for the worst and hope for the best, and that applies to our neighbor to the south as well, and pretty much anybody that we may be allied with now that, but changes their mind down the road. Um, I'm not. Uh, I'm not saying from all this that we need to cut all ties and you know build walls or an entire country but it is imperative that we at least take the issue seriously and fund and deploy assets intelligently to deter any misfeasance towards us so what i'm basically getting at is that if we want to feel protected and be protected there has to be some sort of backing to that as well um i find a lot of people have a very a very negative view of what the military actually does and on top of that because of this, we, we're we not where we should be in terms of military defense. And, uh, of course, we all hope that we'll nev never have to deal with anything so serious. But, like I said before, the whole point of having a military is to be prepared for the worst and hope for the best. So, um, it's important to understand that uh, having a strong military or having, you know, a recognizable military doesn't make a country a military state. Um, it means that the focus is on protecting the citizens and legitimate guests of the country. And because all we know of something happened in Canada that could have been prevented, people would be pointing fingers and asking, oh, well, why weren't we ready? Why weren't we prepared? You know, we had the time, we had the money, we had the resources, whatever the case may be. And it's, uh, it's important, I think, as Canadians for us to stop being reactive and start being proactive. Um, in a lot of, in a lot of senses, we're very, uh, <laughs> We're very quick to react to certain situations, but when it comes to proactiveness, we seem to struggle. Um, and uh, what I've heard a lot from, from other military members and people I've worked with in the past is that, oh, well, it's the old World War II argument. Well, World War II, we ramped up production and we were significant force in no time. Um, I mean, that's great, and I'm great we were able to do that. But alluding to the idea that we don't need to be prepared and that we'll just catch up is kind of an unacceptable way to deal with uh, with a serious issue, um, especially in, in with regards to national defense. Uh, imagine you were planning security, for example, for, for a large event like something like the Olympics, and you had a briefing with local security advisors and planners, and everyone agreed with the mantra of, oh, well, don't worry, if something happens, we'll just call the police and they'll be there in 20 minutes, uh, and then we'll you know figure out what we need afterwards. 
Um, for now, we'll just have, you know, we'll, we'll hire a couple of security guards just to, you know, watch people as they come in and out of the games. Uh, <laughs> anybody that, that's been to events like that would know that that would just be ridiculous. You don't want something to happen and then respond to it. You want to be ready for something to either A, prevent it from happening, or just uh, be able to mitigate it in the, in the process of something happening. Um, in my opinion, when it comes to any sort of uh, defense, especially when it comes to military and even uh, security situations involving police forces or, you know, anything along those lines, it's important that we recognize that prevention is the best defense. Uh, no one wants to be caught with the pants down when something happened and when something should have been ready, something should have been done. It makes everybody look bad and people get hurt. <clears throat> so... The moral of that is that Canadians should be at least willing to discuss being more proactive in defense efforts and actually deploy enough assets to cover the large amount of space that we have and be able to give more resources in order to meet that goal. We agreed many, many years ago with the UN to have a uh, 2% of GDP being dedicated to military expenditure. And f since that time, we've never been at 2%. Um, and even uh, even at that level, that's still relatively low. And I think a lot of the the issue I believe that stems from funding for for Canadians, in a sense, for the military, is that a lot of our information comes from our neighbors to the south. In the U.S., they have huge amounts of expenditure. I think if we look at their GDP percentages, we're looking at like four percent to to six percent, depending on the years. And that's a lot considering how big their economy is uh, in comparison to Canada. But I mean, we uh, we can't be assuming that because they're doing something, we're doing something as well, which is almost never the case. Um, and the other point I want to bring up too, when it comes to public opinion in the military, is that the military is not just a warmongering organization that's ready to pounce on some enemy thousands of kilometers away. Not only would that be uneconomical, it would also be impractical. Uh, military is crucial in many other aspects. Uh, one of our one of the largest mandates for the military is humanitarian aid and patrol of international waters. And in some cases, we also involve uh, airspace patrols um, and have some involvement, at least with our partners to the south, in monitoring space. Um, some may wonder why we would need to be bothered with sea patrols, international waters, and those kind of things. And I, I have a good reason for that. So just understanding the concept of what the goal of a sea patrol is when you're involving a military, like a naval ship, is that uh, they're intended to stop pirates and traffickers, things like that. And <laughs> as funny as it sounds, yes, pirates still do exist. And yes, they're very dangerous and deadly. A lot of the time we always allude back to, like, you know, old pirates and sailboats and, you know, swords and stuff. I don't, that's definitely not the case anymore. These guys are usually pretty heavily armed. And their target is not necessarily, you know, other government ships or military ships or anything like that. Um, their targets are consumer boats. Any Anybody trying to, you know, merchants, things like that, trying to travel through the water to get to other countries. And a good portion of our goods are actually shipped by sea internationally today. And even though it may seem out of date, it's the most cost-effective way in most cases to get goods overseas. And um, if we didn't take responsibility for patrolling international waters, there would be uh, less reason for somebody, for example, to even attempt crossing the sea, which would mean an increase in pricing of goods, which I'm sure nobody would <laughs> appreciate. 
And all modern nations, uh, ones that have active and capable militaries, cooperate on that front. So it's not like there's just one country doing it. There's usually many countries like Canada uh, cooperates with, you know, U.S., uh, the U.K., Australia, New Zealand. All those all those countries are, are involved in some way. So I hope that gives a little more light onto something like, like Sea Patrol. But then somebody might bring up something like, oh, well, why do we need jets then? Uh, you know, jets are typically aggressive for for fighting right they're they're intended to hit targets in the air on the ground that's their main role and uh while it may seem like a waste of money and uh a lot seems to be that's the general consensus is that uh, that millions of dollars for those pieces of aircraft is not necessarily unacceptable but i can understand the the reluctance i mean if i was to be asked to spend you know even a hundred dollars on something that i wasn't really sure what it did or how it worked or why why I would even need it, then I'd pretty I'd be pretty reluctant to spend the money as well. Um, but I'm just going to attempt to clear the air a little bit, uh, as it seems the obvious role for a fighter jet is for offense, is to be an attack or attack aircraft. But unlike a lot of our U.S. counterparts, where they have multiple different uh, different squadrons of aircraft that have different fighter jets that have different capabilities and different roles. In particular, in Canada, we only use one fighter jet platform. And what that means is they're using what's called a multi-role capability. And uh, what exactly is that? It's That means that aside from fighting capability, which they need to be used, which need to be used in wartime scenarios, they're also used as high-altitude reconnaissance aircraft. And they also have the ability to uh, aid in, in uh, certain rescue situations with the use of SCADs, which are survival kits that are airdroppable so it may sound weird having a fighter jet you know with some sort of supply a survival kit attached to it but what the purpose is actually they have these containers that actually attach to the aircraft that uh, when released actually have a have a bunch of life-saving supplies in it like rafts food rations anything along those lines and why would we need something like that is uh in certain situations, especially with Canada in the north, when you start getting farther and farther away from civilization, and you start getting to the ice shelves, and say something happens and somebody gets stranded in the tundra, for a SAR aircraft to respond could take some time. Um, so what they'll do is, in some cases, usually extreme, and it doesn't happen very often, but what they'll do is they'll actually send a jet with these kits attached to them, and they'll drop it off near the people that need assistance and it'll keep them sustained until uh, uh, SAR units can reach them. <clears throat> For those of you that don't know, SAR units search and rescue. Um, and it's it's also important to know that, of course, the primary role of a jet, as I mentioned already, is for fighting, which is not, you know, you can't argue that. Uh, it is important to keep enough of these aircraft, though, on hand so that we can maintain our own responsibilities at home and abroad. Um, you know, like I mentioned before, it's understandable that, you know, well, it's peaceful now. We don't really need them. Why would we need them? No one's going to hurt Canadians. Well, that's great now, but again, we don't know the climate, what it's going to be like in the next year, in the next month, the next five years, the next 10 years. So we need to make sure that we have the capability if we ever need to use it. Um, and on top of that, it's not just us ourselves that we use for protection. Like we use them for Northern, Northern sovereignty, you know, patrolling our Northern borders, but we also share certain responsibilities with our neighboring allies, right? With, uh, with NORAD, uh, North American Aerospace Defense. Uh, we 
share roles for international like protection between the U.S. Canada. And just because we don't need these aircraft currently doesn't mean we won't need them ever in the future. But that being said, I do understand that uh, we need to be forward-looking and maintain an inventory of equipment that will last until the next procurement cycle. And I feel like as Canadians, we don't do a very good job of that a lot of the time. Um, so, I mean, we don't want to just throw money at something and, you know, hope it sticks. So when we're looking at objects like buying Navy ships, destroyers, and buying aircrafts like jets, um, it's important to make sure that we get something that actually does the job we need it to do. Um, and we need to make sure that we spend the right time and energy on it because it is a large investment of time and energy and money. And if we don't get the right solution, we'll end up wasting money down the road. And the important part to note with that, especially with public opinion, is that with the big price tag, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the best. But at the same token, the cheapest item may not do what we need it to do either. So we can't just go for a knockoff because we don't want to spend the extra money. So think about it this way. If you're, you're not going to buy a $1,000, 20-year-old uh, beater car and expect it to last 10 years, and you're not going to buy a Corolla when you need the capabilities of a pickup truck. So why would we try and do that for an aircraft? Cheap upfront usually almost always means more expensive in the long run because maintenance and upgrade costs that are required to you know keep these machines alive become more expensive as they get older. Especially when it comes to the case of our jets, there's been a fight about it for years about you know getting the right one it's a lot of money and all that but uh, an important thing to take note of is that the longer we wait to replace these aircraft the more expensive they get and buying older jets that are of the same make and model of our current jets are not going to suit us very well because we'll run into those same problems we have to refit them at a certain amount of hours on the airframe and that's just not ideal so again, on the note of humanitarian operations, military, of course, is not just on a crusade for the next biggest fight. Um, one of the largest roles in military is in domestic disaster relief and international humanitarian aid. Things like tsunamis like Haiti, blizzards, uh, floods like in Quebec uh, recently, and forest fires like in BC and Alberta in the past few years, and uh, disasters at sea like tanker collisions, etc. have all had the assistance of the military in some way, shape, or form, and I've probably missed a few. But in my personal experiences with military members, most that are enli either enlisted or commissioned, are there because they believe in helping others. It's not a matter of picking fights, and I feel a lot of the time, especially when it comes to being in the public, is that the assumption is that the military is there to pick a fight, or that that's, you know, gung-ho, that we just want to go out and, you know, shoot people, or whatever it is. And, uh, that's not the goal. <laughs> um, of course, we do see bad apples and they do get exposed in the media uh, in most cases. And they have had some pretty high profile cases that have come to light. And But I honestly believe that uh, most that enroll are in the military to make things better, not worse. Um, everyone has some form of family and friends. And or when you're away from family for so long... You, you kind of make a, a family-like bond, especially with your, your platoon mates, your squad mates, whatever, your, whatever it is. And um, most, I find, most military members aren't necessarily keen to go to war. But if there is something that comes to light that requires them to go and fight, they're, they're ready to do it. That's what they'll do. They want to fight for their country. They want to fight for freedom, peace, and, you know, 
help those that need our help. Uh, those that may not be able to protect themselves. The mentality of most members is that of protecting those that cannot protect themselves. The attitude is that of a family. Like if somebody's trying to pick on your brother or your sister or even your cousin, you're probably not you're probably not going to just stand there and let that person do whatever. You and at some point or another, you're going to go ahead and and stand up for them. I'm not saying pick a fight, but you are going to be like, hey, look, that's not cool. Like, what are you doing? Um, that's pretty much the role of modern day military. Um, it's not a fear mongering organization. Uh, we're not trying to instigate or irritate other countries into, into fights that, you know, couldn't be bothered. Um, I feel a lot of the negative attention that we see towards the military in Canada in particular is that a lot of our exposure to media is focused on our allies to the South, our, uh, our American friends, but in a sense, we have to understand that we're not the U.S. We don't we don't do what the U.S. does. Uh, they're a much bigger country than us, so it's just the nature of the beast that we're going to see a lot more of what they do as opposed to what we do. And I also believe that's something that should be addressed on our end too. I believe there needs to be more PR, good PR, uh, uh, on the what what our military does and get people really to know what we do and why we do it. Um, I believe the transparency would probably benefit us greatly. If people can understand the reasons why we do things, then they will probably be more willing to, you know, uh, uh, let go of their tax dollars to do certain things that can help benefit everybody. As as far as a country goes, we have our own values and we <laughs> we like helping our allies, but we're, we've never really picked a fight uh, with another country on our own. And uh, it's important that we make a bigger stand, though, on a, on a world stage and assert ourselves as some some something of power or not necessarily power per se but something of uh of a good a good friend i would say a good ally somebody that's there to stand by their stand by their friends and allies but is also able to make their own decisions you know on their on their own and not wait for somebody else to do something for them or be told by somebody else to do it i believe that it's important that as canadians we need to be able to take care of ourselves, that we need to be able to be militarily strong, economically strong, and politically strong. We need to make sure that as a country, we're prepared for the worst case. Now, obviously we want to have allies, and obviously we want to make as many connections as we can because the more allies you make and the better ties you make with you know reputable countries and countries where we can you know share our goods and they share theirs, um, we can make ourselves stronger economically. But it's also important to understand that we need to make sure that Canadians are ready as well in case something does go wrong. And I believe it's important to foster new relationships as Canadians, uh, not just with uh, countries that we have huge partnerships with already, but reaching out to countries that may not necessarily have been our best allies in the past. So to sum it all up, I believe it's important that we shift our public opinion and knowledge of the military to a more positive light. Personally, I want the public to understand that our sheer size, like landmass, demands a sizable investment in military infrastructure. I want to stress that the military objective is not to go towards a priority, but rather as a necessity, as a means to resolving a conflict that cannot be solved through other means. It is important to be, to be ready to provide humanitarian aid, uh, and provide that kind of exposure to the public and where we need to focus on helping others and being ready to defend those who can't defend themselves 
and it's important that Canadians remain active on the stage of international affairs and that we make sure to assert ourselves as a country that is not only able to take care of itself, but able to be an important player in international affairs. So that's it for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed our first introductory podcast. I'll be posting a new podcast with every topic Monday, so don't miss out. Uh, for some of our future podcasts, I'll sit down with a, and interview people that are close to the issues that we discuss, and we'll uh, you know just sort of go over what uh, their thoughts and opinions are on the matter. Uh, if you guys have any suggestions or comments, feel free to email us at opendisclosure at silverestmedia.com, and I'll post the link on our podcast page. And don't forget to check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and even Twitter. So, can't wait. See you next week.